Before the existence of written records, humans systematized combat. From prehistory and into the modern day, martial arts have been a part of the fabric of culture and civilization. Whether as a means of self-protection or to wage war, or to compete, or to preserve a tradition, or to touch personal greatness, these codified methods push us to ask questions, to explore, to express, to test, and to tell stories. This is Jamie Club's podcast, the official podcast of Club Chimera Martial Art, where we take the path of the vagabond warrior to find knowledge and inspiration from people, events, and ideas. If you are interested in where to follow Jamie Club and Club Chimera products and services, please wait until the end of the show. In the meantime, if you think this product is worth the price of a cup of coffee, please click on Support the Show in this episode's show notes. This episode returns to our Crimes of Opportunity self-protection series. To listen to part one, please go back to season six, episode 10. As with the previous episode, there is an explicit content and trigger warning. This episode refers to some of the most horrific crimes in modern history that some audiences may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. The Way of the Vulture, Part 2 Chapter 3 Crime Opportunity Theory When it comes to the threat triangle touched upon in the previous chapter, there is only so much one can do to reduce each of the three elements in a practical and mentally sustainable way. The physical training we all mainly focus on can only do so much to diminish an enemy's capabilities. A person's physical appearance can only go so far to deter an enemy before it becomes counterproductive. Depending on the country, there are legal and practical constraints to arming ourselves. Even countries that allow citizens the right to carry firearms have to consider the problems associated with knife attacks famously exposed by Sergeant Dennis Tula, not to mention the presence of multiple armed antagonists. Intent, it can be fairly argued, is largely in the domain of de-escalation soft skills and conflict management training. This is the expert domain of the likes of Joe Saunders of Managing Violence, where those who follow and have trained in his material will have valuable insights as well as realistic applications of methods to change a potential threat's intentions. However, as Joe will argue, de-escalation only works for socially violent offenders. We can create empathy, build dialogue and even befriend dangerously violent people with hair-trigger tempers if the source of their antagonism is a feeling of disempowerment and disrespect. By contrast, a predator cannot be de-escalated because they were never escalated in the first place. They primarily use violence not to assert their self-esteem, perceived position in a social pecking order or to avenge their sore ego, but as a means to a clear end. This might be to steal money or acquire an item of value or to satisfy a warped impulse or desire. As we will see in our next chapter, the extreme examples presented by the serial killers in this podcast offer no evidence of a changeable intent until they have begun their physical assault. This then brings us back to the third element, opportunity. This might be a factor we have the most direct influence over in self-protection. Writing in 1998, Marcus Felsen and Ronald V. Clark put it clear in their paper's title, Opportunity Makes the Thief. The paper's introduction states, quote, Criminological theory 
has long seemed irrelevant to those who have to deal with offenders in the real world. This irrelevance stems partly from attributing the causes of crime to distant factors such as child-rearing practices, genetic makeup, and psychological or social processes. These are mostly beyond the reach of everyday practice, and their combination is extremely complicated for those who want to understand crime, much less do something about it. In this publication, we shall show that understanding crime causation is not necessarily burdensome and that this understanding is relevant to the routine prevention work undertaken by police and others. In brief, we will argue that opportunity makes the thief is much more than just an old saying and has important implications for crime policy and practice. Individual behaviour is a product of an interaction between the person and the setting. Most criminological theory pays attention only to the first, asking why certain people might be more criminally inclined or less so. This neglects the second, the most important features of each setting, that helps to translate criminal inclinations into action. End quote. As you can see, Felsen and Clark were very concerned about the practical application of criminology as a means for direct crime prevention. Their research was built on the back of a criminological take on rational choice theory, as well as routine activity theory, and the concept of situational crime prevention through environmental design. The two criminologists state in their paper's executive summary, quote, Recent Opportunity theories of crime have emphasised principles which are close to the real world, easy to explain and teach, and ready to put into practice. They include the routine activity approach, the rational choice perspective, and crime pattern theory. Routine activity theory posits that a crime occurs when a likely offender happens upon a suitable target and there is no obvious guardian present. The aforementioned Marcus Felsen and fellow criminologist Lawrence E. Cohen first proposed this event-focused approach to theory. Felsen and Clark argue that opportunity is a quote-unquote root cause of all crimes and even go so far as to say that it provided the motivation. Indeed, looking at the paper, one can see how much a good understanding of crime opportunity has done a lot to combat many crimes, especially fraud. Sadly, so much of crime prevention is reactive and sensitive to politics rather than hard data and research in the field. There is still a lot to be gained from reading and implementing many of the suggestions made by this paper written over two decades ago. The authors outline their own view in ten principles, each titled as a statement. 1. Opportunities play a role in causing all crime. Starting with the boldest of statements, Felsen and Clark state that even sexual offences may be prevented through reducing opportunities. 2. Crime opportunities are very specific. Many superficially similar crimes require a different set of opportunities coming together. Street muggers require a different set of circumstances and look for different opportunities than bank or post office robbers. Therefore, the criminologists argue responses need to be better tailored to prevent specific crimes of opportunity. 3. Crime opportunities are concentrated in time and space. This is where routine crime opportunity theory and crime pattern theory are useful. Crimes shift from hour to hour from day to day with certain times and days of the week providing very different opportunities. The same can be said for different addresses, even those within the same high crime area. 4. Crime opportunities depend on everyday movements of activity. Our everyday activities and routines provide targets for different types of criminals. 5. One crime produces opportunities for another. 
Whilst being involved in one illicit activity, a criminal may think nothing of committing other crimes. Without the protection of any laws, gangsters employ violence to protect their businesses and to take out rival businesses. Prostitutes become targets for rapists and other violent offenders. The same criminal may hit an easy target more than once. 6. Some products offer more tempting crime opportunities. At the time the paper was written, the authors gave the example of VCR theft. The reason this used to be a very common crime in burglaries was because of their high value, high visibility, accessibility and the fact that they were easy to carry. For those of you not born in the previous century, a VCR was a video cassette recorder. Although I really wonder why I need to explain that. I mean, after all, I know what a horse and carriage is and also what a gas lamp was. And everyone seems to know what gaslighting is these days. But that's a conversation for another day. Today, we might see the same being said about mobile phone muggings. The user is often unaware, has the item on full display, and it would be an easy sale on the black market. Jewellery, of course, remains a very popular target for burglars and muggers for the aforementioned reasons. The bigger the bling, the more attractive the target. 7. Social and technological changes produce new crime opportunities. Here the authors could not have been more prophetic. Crime and its prevention has long been an arms race with the criminals ahead of the police. The 21st century has seen a meteoric rise and mass mutation in fraud, stalking, data theft, intimidation, bullying and online organised crime from drug running to slavery to child abuse rings. Since the writing of Felsen and Clark's paper, we've seen a powerful fusion of digital technology and society. Bathed in bits is the expression used by Don Tapscott in his various publications on generations growing up in an online world. Felsen and Clark appear to be mainly concerned with theft and make comparisons with marketing theory. A new product goes through four stages. Innovation, growth, mass marketing and saturation. The authors explain that crimes of opportunity hit the middle two stages, mass marketing and saturation, the hardest when products are readily available but are still valuable. 8. Reducing opportunities can prevent crimes. This is the very obvious nub of our learning. Situational awareness training is a fundamental soft skill and pre-fight element of good self-protection training. Here the paper discusses quote-unquote situational crime prevention. The authors cite rational choice crime opportunity theory as the engine for their general crime prevention solutions. When it comes to self-protection, we like generalisations. If the tailored crime prevention solution theory worried you, then this one will probably be a better fit. Four practical solutions can be applied to reduce the risk of criminal opportunity. 1. Increase the perceived effort of a crime. 2. Increase the risk factor for a criminal. 3. Reduce the anticipated rewards for committing said crime. 4. Remove excuses for a crime. At the time of writing the paper, Felsen and Clark stated, quote, There are approaching 100 evaluated examples of the successful implementation of situational crime prevention. Unquote. 9. Reducing opportunities does not usually displace crime. This is an interesting conclusion. Patient listeners and long-time students of my material will be aware of my inability to pass up an opportunity to use a folktale, parable or fable. In this instance, I think of the three billy goats gruff approach. 
this Scandinavian tale tells the story of three different sized billy goats who wish to cross a bridge. If you're not familiar with the story, what the hell happened to your childhood? Please look it up and uh, try to find a more traditional telling of the tale. A lot of the more sanitized versions seem to lose a lot of the essence of what the story is all about. But in essence, three billy goats try to cross the bridge, possibly providing the metaphor for the grass is always greener. They want to get to a lush meadow. The trouble is the bridge that they need to cross in order to get there is guarded by a troll, a very greedy troll with a fondness for goat flesh. Anyway, the first two billy goats, a small billy goat and a medium-sized billy goat, dissuade the troll from eating them by saying that there's a larger billy goat who's about to cross the bridge and the troll would better enjoy that particular animal. So it works for the first billy goat. Uh, this medium-sized billy goat says the same. And by the time the, the larger billy goat comes in, or the biggest of the three, arrives, the troll immediately jumps on the bridge, can't wait to eat him. But of course, he meets his match because the larger billy goat is able to butt him straight over the bridge. Anyway, the three billy goats gruff strategy as applied to self-protection, puts it that we often assume that a criminal will overlook us in order to select an easier mark. According to Felsen and Clark, there is little evidence to suggest the reduction of a type of crime in one area has directly led to the increase in another. This neatly moves us onto their final principle. 10. Focused opportunity reduction can produce wider declines in crime. It would appear that criminals often overestimate the reach of prevention measures and nearby locations often get the benefits of their neighbours' good work. Felsen and Clark state, quote, Moreover, there is good reason to believe that reductions in crime opportunity can drive down larger crime rates for community and society. End quote. A regular criticism of this theory is that its conclusion regarding motivation is partial and idealistic. There are many criminals who manufacture opportunities. According to their psychological profiles and the evidence yielded by their crimes, there are large portions of human predators who have specific targets dictated far more by individualistic preference than accessibility. However, these aren't the focus of the way of the vulture. Furthermore, many of Felsen and Clark's principles align with our reoccurring theme. We need to be aware of how society and cultural environments help to facilitate opportunistic predators. Prefacing the second part of Serial Killers, the overall second radio programme in his Murder After Midnight series, Martin Fido describes the environmental factors of interwar Germany where he would describe the horrific cases of both Fritz Harman and Peter Curtin. Quote, the trauma of defeat was imposed on a culture which supplied all the rigidly class-structured competitiveness postulated by Elliot Layton as the best fertiliser for the crime, and just those rigid patterns of heavily disciplined upbringing which Swiss psychologist Alice Miller believes encouraged sadism." End quote. Although this type of discussion moves us away from Felsen and Clark's assertions that crime opportunity theories provide more direct action solutions, it's interesting to see that certain environments not only present ideal conditions to tempt criminals, but also nurture some of society's most dangerous offenders. Elliot Layton was a Canadian socio-anthropologist and regular consultant on serial homicide. Leighton's book Hunting Humans, first published in 1986 and of which I have read the expanded 2001 reprint, was one of the first modern studies into serial killing as a social phenomenon. Leighton puts it that serial killers are essentially individuals who see themselves as failures and blame a certain social class for their failings. 
Such a theory might neatly fit the profile of the likes of an Ian Brady, an Albert DeSalvo, or even the previously mentioned Dennis Nielsen with all his self-righteous and indignation. However, on the whole, it's a very narrow view and dismissive of biological theories, psychological theories and misogyny. Two years after the original publication of Hunting Humans, Joel Norris released his seminal book, Serial Killers the Growing Menace, which might be viewed as a diametric rebuttal of Leighton's societal motive theory. Norris provided us with the hugely influential 21 Patterns of Episodic Aggressive Behaviour. Many items on the list are often regularly cited today, such as suffering injuries or injuries at birth, compulsive lying, being a result of an unwanted pregnancy, extraordinary cruelty to animals, substance abuse and, in line with Fido's reference to Alice Miller's research, having suffered abuse as a child. Norris's own conclusions has also since been critiqued by psychologists such as Helen Morrison, who offered her own much smaller list of unifying patterns amongst recreational serial killers. She rightly pointed out that not all serial killers reported or showed evidence that they had been abused as children, that it was not a new phenomenon but probably existed even in ancient societies, and that it was far from being peculiar to the West. Morrison did agree with the idea that there was probably a genetic anomaly that drove individuals to kill in this way, but rather controversially, didn't believe they were psychopaths. Like Norris, she believed they had compulsive personalities, but she put it that they were unable to stop killing and this total lack of control meant that they weren't psychopathic. This might be viewed as an argument against the organised versus disorganised model of criminality, but that's a rabbit hole for another day and only demonstrates the rather fickle ground where such studies stand. Elliot Layton's material still has value, especially when we look at how the metaphorical and literal architecture of a culture and society fosters criminality. As Martin Fido would say in his conclusion to Serial Killers, Roundup, it's easy to see how urban sprawl, along with the industrial and corporate ages, might influence such antisocial behaviours. Large populations of people, concentrated into areas, yet alienated from each other, seems like a toxic cocktail for antagonism. The main criticism made against opportunity theories, especially Felsen and Cohen's routine opportunity theory, was that there was no good explanation provided for why an offender might be motivated. Hence the title of Opportunity Makes the Thief. One would imagine a circular argument here with Felsen and Clark stating that motivations aren't important. If you remove the opportunity, then the crime cannot happen. As previously mentioned, this does not really account for a large portion of criminals that manufacture opportunities. Whether they are predators who prey on strangers or on people they know, these individuals do not just select the metaphorical low-hanging fruit. They have clear preferences and they use whatever influences and skills are at their disposal in order to action their crime. As self-protection teachers and researchers, there is plenty we can take from the opportunity theories whilst understanding that they are far from infallible or complete in their use. Falson, Cohen and Clark's research and conclusions don't really address the sort of predator who creates opportunities through exerting their influence, the abusive partner who uses a relationship as one big opportunity, or even the school bully. If a criminal has enough intent, they will find or create an opportunity, even if one is not readily available. However, this isn't to say that applying a lot of the information taken from the Felsen and Clark's 10 principles cannot be helpful, even in the reduction of these particular situations. Take the bullying one for example. Just prior to my daughter entering secondary school, we, like most parents, checked out the local options. 
Prior to visiting one school, we were told that it had a reputation for bullying and there had been incidents reported in the local press. Sure enough, upon visiting, the first thing that met us in the foyer was the school's anti-bullying policy. Despite the good intentions, this is not really a good sign. Next, we notice the architecture of the school. A warren of narrow corridors provides the perfect spot for physical bullies to prey on their targets as they queue for lessons. Further evidence for the lack of adult supervision here was demonstrated by the obscene graffiti on display in these same corridors. Needless to say, my daughter did not attend and sure enough, I received calls from parents of students attending this particular school asking for self-protection lessons because their child had been involved in physical incidents. As far as vultures go, opportunity theories provide a lot of essential material to prevent their circling of targets. In the next episode of The Way of the Vulture, we'll return to our spotlighted vulturesque serial killers and see if we can learn anything from those who escaped their claws. My other books, Wrong Foo and Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings, are also available through Amazon as both ebooks and paperbacks, and I'm also selling signed copies. These works are collections of rewritten and re edited essays I've produced over the last two decades. Wrong Foo is a prequel to my Bullshit Sioux and the Fight to Make Martial Arts Work project, which deals with critical thinking in the history of martial arts. Mordred's Victory and Other Martial Mutterings covers the 10 years I ran Club Chimera Martial Arts as a school. Nowadays, I teach private lessons, courses and seminars. These are bespoke services that put you in charge of your martial arts journey. I teach self-protection and martial arts cross-training. You can train with me one-to-one or in a small group. I count individual clients, couple clients, parent and child clients and various other combinations. These can be taught face-to-face or virtually. I also regularly teach clubs, societies and associations nationally and internationally. Please go to clubchimera.com the details. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Owltale or whatever podcast platform you're currently using. If you could leave me a five-star rating and a review, I'd be really grateful. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and at long last TikTok. Facebook also has a members group in addition to the main business page, so please send in a request to join in with the training discussions and be a part of the wider CCMA community. I'm also uploading new content to YouTube. There are various short videos, vlogs and full video versions of some of these podcast episodes on there as well as filming of my various lessons so you get an idea of the different services that I provide. Please check out the services section on the YouTube channel to find out more details on these individual services and suggestions for where you might want to take your training with me. Again, please subscribe, like, share and leave a comment. All favourable engagement on these platforms helps keep CCMA going. Now, I don't know where you listen to this show or watch or read any of the other free content I produce. My time to listen to podcasts usually occurs during dog walks or solo car journeys or when I'm undertaking some mundane task or other around my home. I watch videos when I'm in the kitchen. My reading time occurs when I'm in a waiting room or during a rest period at home. My guess is a good number of you will think nothing of buying a coffee or some other beverage when you're commuting or waiting or on your break. 
If you believe that the work I produce is worth the price of a coffee, then please click on support the show in this episode's show notes. Whether or not you choose to do this, my thanks to everyone who joins me on this Vagabond Warriors journey, and I look forward to sharing more travel notes with you all on the next show.